Well, good morning. I wish y'all got as excited about church as they just did. So feel free at any time to burst out into, well, not giggles, but, you know, celebration, excitement. Um, so you've just had fight number 1,236 with your spouse, maybe on the way to church this morning. Was your first thought, God's kingdom's coming? Maybe not. Uh, maybe you have some teenagers, they were away this weekend, but you have some teenagers and, you know, it's the third year of, you know, in our case, like, I don't know, two decades worth of teenagers when it, they all get said and done of you got teenage attitude and teenage drama and teenage pressure. And it is your first thought, God's kingdom's coming or teenagers, parents annoying you and they don't give you freedom and, and they jump down your case for no reason and they're whatever was your first thought. God's kingdom is coming. Or you go to the gas tank. And you stick that thing in there. And it's not $1.90 a gallon anymore. It's $2.50 a gallon is your first thought. God's kingdom is coming. Or maybe as you think about the heavier and bigger issues that are facing this life and nation. And the next time you see across your video, across your TV, a cell phone video of a horrible injustice is your first thought. God's kingdom is coming. Or you read the news reports and you find one more executive order signing away religious liberties or the house passes an equality bill that's anything but, which is one of the greatest assaults and religious freedom our country has ever seen. Or a bill that wants to twist within our minds, how do you define genders? Or an executive order that wants to do that is your first thought. God's kingdom is coming. Now, please get get me right. I am not saying that as a cop-out. Like, I don't have to live in the real world. I don't have to deal with real-world stuff. God's kingdom's coming, whatever. I mean that is a framing perspective for the issues and pressures and challenges and hurts and longings and brokenness in the world around you is the framing perspective of how you go live that out. There's a better kingdom coming. And it lasts a whole lot longer than this kingdom. And it's so much better than this kingdom. So I can go face tomorrow. I can go face these feelings of hurt, anger, and resentment. I can go face these fears of what comes next because there's a better kingdom coming. So today we're, we're in Daniel chapter 2, 31 through 49, and there's a little more history and kind of heady things attached to this passage. So I want to start it out with two questions that I'm going to ask throughout the, the message. And I think there are two questions that this text forces on us, but there are also two questions that increasingly make this text very practical in our lives. Question one, what about your life today makes you long For the coming kingdom of God. What stresses, pains, worries, frustrations, fears, angers that you face in your life make you long more for the kingdom to come? That's intensely practical. Ask it over and over and over again as we go through the words of the text. The second question. What kingdom will you live for? There's going to be two kingdoms in this text. One is really big, one is really mighty, one is really seen, one is really amazing, one is really experienced by you and me, and it will ultimately be crushed into dust and blown away like wind. One is coming, one is eternal, 
One has our Savior as its king. Which kingdom will you give your life to? And so as we look in the the details of human empires, as big and wonderful as they may be, we remember their dust that's about to get blown away and a better kingdom's coming. What matters is what kingdom I give this little bitty speck of a life to. What makes you long for the coming kingdom of God? What kingdom are you going to live for while you have breath on this life? So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2. We've talked about the overall theme of Daniel. Be hopeful. God is sovereign and working out his eternal plans despite all appearances and opposition. Be hopeful. God is working. God is sovereign and he's working out his eternal plans despite all appearances and opposition. We, we opened up the series with two messages that give us the backdrop. won't go through them uh, completely again, but they, they give us the backdrop. And I hope we've seen enough uh, of our own walk of faith within these backgrounds. Background one is the outside, the cultural background. And it is that there is a culture that wants to immerse you and own you and, and deeply root inside your heart and possess your life. And that was what Nebuchadnezzar tried to do when they come in. They wanted to Babylonianize the, the hearts of the people they were taking over, the hearts of God's people, the hearts of Daniel and his friends. And so they saturated them within this different worldview, this different culture, so that they didn't even know how to answer the questions with God in the equation anymore. But God will always have a faithful remnant. God will always have people that belong to him and follow him and walk with him. And so the second message was the response of Daniel that said, you can't have my heart. And so the lines that I need to draw in my life that keep you from owning my heart and washing me with a worldview that doesn't include my God in it, that's the lines I'm going to draw. And I'm going to live a life of faith and I'm going to live a life of boldness. I'm going to live a life that puts myself out there with God by going to work every single day and doing the best job I can for a pagan emperor and for a lost world and a, a lost job and I just do everything I can as well as I possibly can and just trust the favor of God to use and work within me in that situation. Uh, and then last week, uh, the first part of today's story that led up to today's story, there's a real God in the real world who works in real ways through his people. There's a real God in the real world who works in real ways through his people. And so Nebuchadnezzar faces this, like, I've got this dream. It's terrifying to me. I've got this dream. It's very unsettling. You guys have to tell me what it is and then tell me what it means. And they're like, we can't do that. And the, the big thing about that, the big takeaways about last week were there's, there was the human, locked-in human wisdom and, and um, uh human limitations, and then there was Daniel under God. And so the three statements that started and got reversed at the end were this. King, no human being can do that. We have all of these abilities. We have all this learning. We have this huge library of knowledge, but nobody can do what you're asking. The gods can do it, but the gods don't do stuff like that. And so at the end result was a hopelessness and a helplessness before the coming execution for their lives. In America, we, tra- we, tra- we change that set of statements. Yes, there's humans. Yes, we have ability. It is amazing what we can achieve in this country with science and technology. 
And yet we run up into massive barriers to answer the big questions that nag at our hearts. And we've got all these amazing screens that keep us from having to answer, ask and answer the hard questions. Who am I? What is this all about? Where do I come from? Where am I going? What does this mean? And we ask it. And as a country, we've decided the answer is there is no God. There's only this world, the matter of this world, the science of this world, and there is nothing beyond us. And so when those questions get asked, there is no answer. There's no voice to return. It's hopeless and it's helpless. But then Daniel answers this in, in the exact opposite way at the end. There's no one on earth that can do what you ask, king. But there is a God in heaven And that God in heaven does reveal mysteries. So to answer it for us, there there is amazing things that we can accomplish. And there are massive limitations to what we can accomplish. But there's a God in heaven. He has always dwelled among his people. And in fact, he became one of his people and dwelt among us and allowed us to see his glory. There is a God in heaven who intervenes in the real lives of his people, in the real world that he's made. That leads into the dream of today. And what we're going to see is that this dream involves all these successive world empires that go from one to the next. They are shifting. They're changing. The people in control change. The the lands under their control change. But they ultimately will disappear And a better king and a better kingdom that will not ever trade out to another group of people, but will be established forever. That kingdom is coming. And so if you're Daniel and you're like, I am in a massive world empire. I'm part of one of these little bitty nothing nations. There's no way this could ever get put back together right again. And then I hear a dream. Oh, yeah, there are these big, massive world empires and they're terrifying there's a better kingdom that's going to crush them all and come. I can be hopeful in my exile. And then if you were one of the Jews that were uh, returned from exile and you got the book of Daniel handed to you and it was part of your Old Testament Bible, part of their current Bible, and you're like, I just realized the glory can never be like the glory it was before. We can never get back what we lost. And I read it. Like, yeah, but there's a better kingdom coming. And it's going to crush out all these other kingdoms. And we're going to live in that one forever. I can be hopeful. And if you're sitting in America and your political hopes are raised over the last few months or crushed over the last few months, you can look out and say, there is so much better kingdom coming. And so much better king coming. And you can be hopeful. So let's read. That's what this is about. Uh, Verse 31 through 49. In verse 31, it says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. The image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out, but by no human hands. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the shaft of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. 
But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron uh, mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw the stone that was cut out by the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray. I pray that as we look out at this world, our hearts would would cry out with John. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. I pray that we would look at our frustrations, our fears, our angers. And our hearts would groan, oh, Jesus, come. And then I pray it would compel us to live lives for a better kingdom. To put that unseen, saving kingdom on display. To bring that kingdom to bear on our lives and our relationships and the lost people around us, God. I pray that that these weighty truths would do those things within us. And so we pray for that, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So, God's forever kingdom is coming. God's forever kingdom is coming. The first part of this is the kingdoms of this world are all temporal. The kingdoms of this world are all temporal. How many of y'all have bought something from Walmart? That's all of you. I know it is. And you flop it over to the other side and you see a little tag on it that says, Made in China. And so you know the combination of bought at Walmart, made in China means 
nothing lasts forever. <laughs> Everything is temporary. And you get about a three-month reminder of that because your can opener busts apart or your blender stops working or your mixer burns out. Nothing lasts forever. We stuck a little go-kart on Mars. And we can't make a dryer sensor that makes your clothes come out dry and last more than about like two and a half years. Can't or won't, whatever. Nothing Last forever. I want you to stop and think about it this way. If I were to say, before the year 1500, name me 20 people. If you are not in a history program of some sort, you'd be like, I can get the first five. Six gets a little harder. Eight gets really hard. Twelve, oh, I don't know. I've got to really dig into those dusty recesses of my mind. And by the time I get to 18, I'm like, I'm out. You know how many great human beings lived before the year 1500? Do you know how many world-shaping people lived before the year 1500? Do you know how many great inventions? How much great learning? How many great empires? How many great Christians? How many great men with great accomplishments and women with great accomplishments lived before the year 1500? You can't name 20 of them. And then you look at our little lives. And our little worries, and our little stresses, and our little frustrations. I don't think there's going to be anything about me that makes it to the history books. I don't think there's going to be anything that would even make me one of the footnotes that you should know about if you had paid attention in your history classes. And probably not about you either. Is that a depressing thought? Is that a discouraging thought? Or is that a thought that just simply frames for you a, a better way of thinking about your life? If I have a little life that's going to be forgotten in almost no time, what will I give my little bitty forgotten life to that matters? That matters. I think that's exactly what this text is pressing on us as, as we go for it. And the second question I ask is this. Where are you going to bank your treasure? Where are you going to bank your treasure? Anybody know what banks the Romans used in like Jesus' day? I have zero clue. And I study this stuff for a living. Where are you going to bank your treasure if everything is temporary? Let's look at it. So we found out last week, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had, had had this dream, and it was obviously about the empire, and it was obviously about the kingdom. And what we saw that we'll see again today is we saw this elevation of Nebuchadnezzar. He was a great emperor. He was a great king. He was, I mean, he was a trailblazer. He was highly skilled and very wise, and he built a really amazing empire. And he had some really great accomplishments and victories. And God, in the midst of all of this starting of this empire, puts beside him, yes, that's true, you're elevated. But you're elevated within this perspective. There's a big old eternal kingdom, and your little bitty great but little bitty kingdom needs to be put in the right perspective if that's the case. And so that's what this dream presses on him. He has this image come up. And it's, it's an image that's described as colossal. It's big. It's huge. And it's really, really bright and shining. And so it's like this metal with, with the brightest sun bouncing off of it and blinding against his eyes. And look how it describes it. It is very frightening. Like when you look up and see a massive, like 
building-sized statue in front of you, and it is so bright that it blinds you, it's a little disconcerting. And so you can see why Nebuchadnezzar, one, kind of was fuzzy about the details of the dream, because he's staring at something that is bright as the sun. And, and when you're staring at bright stuff, you don't get to see the finer details of what's happening. And so like, he didn't know exactly what the dream was. He just had a little pieces of it. But you can also see why he couldn't sleep very well. Like, what is this massive, terrifying figure that I keep seeing in my dreams? I don't know that I want to go back there and see that tonight. And so that's how this image is is described for him. And then it's described as four different metals, which will later be four different kingdoms that are unpacked. There's gold, and then there's silver, and then there's bronze, and then there's iron, and and finally down into um, to his feet. And so... One thing I want to say to make sure is clear is this. God does not tell us what those four metals and later those four kingdoms are. Right? And so the point is not let's uncover world empires. The point is not what did these empires do and why were they stronger and why were they not as strong? Why were they superior and why were they inferior? The point is not that stuff. The point of this text is super, super simple. The greatest kingdoms on earth will become dust that are blown away. And there will not be one trace of the greatest things humans ever accomplish. And God is going to establish a kingdom that blows them all away and never, ever moves, never transitions, never gets a new president, never gets a new king, never is taken over by another. And it's going to be a kingdom that rules over everything. That's the point. That's the point. The greatest empires on earth will blow away, and God will establish a kingdom that lasts forever. But it is kind of cool. If you think about it, God comes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he gives him 1,900 years of human future history, like future for him, but history to us. He does that. Like he supernaturally knows what is going to unfold over the next couple of thousand years. He knows everything. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, who has no right to the knowledge of God. He has no right to God's insight. And yet God gives him insight of what will be in the next 1900 years and what will be for forever. And so that's kind of a cool playoff as, as you go through these things. Um, I want to read for you Psalm 2 because it tells us about, about Messiah's kingdom. Listen to this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kingdoms of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you and his wrath be kindled. And you perish on the way. Massive kingdoms of this earth are laughable in the face of God. 
Because he has a king in mind. He has a king that's established. His son will be placed over his kingdom. And his kingdom will crush the nations of the earth. And the nations of the earth will have about as fighting a chance as a, a clay planting pot has against a steel rod smacked against it. That's the perspective of all these empires unfolding. Ultimately coming to a better king and a better kingdom that is the son of God. The Messiah establishing it. And so if you're Daniel and you're facing exile, there's some things you need to know. If you're a Jewish guy post-exile, so there's some things you need to know. And if you're you and I, there's some things we need to know. The better kingdom of the Son of God. The kingdom that is joyful and fearful at the same time. That kingdom's coming. And so we'll get to the interpretations of the four medals in just a second. But one little uh, technical thing that is debated is, is this for kings or is this for empires? Right? And so in Daniel, we do have Nebuchadnezzar mentioned. We have Belshazzar, which is not a son, but called a son. Like he's a generations from Nebuchadnezzar. We have Darius the Mede and we have Cyrus the Persian. And so is it just talking about these four kings of Daniel, which lay us at the feet of the return from exile of the Jewish nation? Uh, that's one interpretation. It's not the majority interpretation because nothing like happens in this text happens when, when Israel gets back into the land. It's really kind of anticlimactic. They don't rule themselves. The Gentiles still rule them. Nothing great happens much in the life of the nation. They are still under Roman authority and Roman rule from, from, from there on out. Or, or, I'm sorry, the other kingdoms rule from there on out. Another thing you'll notice, or, or the other option, which is the majority interpretation, is that these are four world empires that ultimately lead us to the coming of Jesus, that ultimately lead us to Messiah's kingdom coming. That's the one we're going to focus on. And so the metals move from precious gold to less valuable silver to less valuable bronze, but then something changes. It doesn't become less valuable. It comes stronger and, and, and tougher metal. And so kingdom one is gold. It's beautiful. It's the gold standard. Kingdom four is not beautiful, but it is strong and it is brutal and it crushes everything in its path. And those are the two that the text will focus on. So, so let's jump in. I, I do want to hit the next point here. Um, God gives rulers their scope, glory, and authority. God gives rulers their scope, glory, and authority. You know, Acts says it this way. He made from one man every nation of mankind having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that all men may seek God. Every nation on earth, the biggest nations on earth, the greatest nations on earth, they last the exact minute amount of time that God determines for them. They cover the exact borders that God has determined for them. And when it comes to Nebuchadnezzar, he gives rulers their scope, glory, and authority. And so it's kind of odd language. Think about it. When you, when you hear God talk, or Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar, you're the king of kings, Nebuchadnezzar. Who else is called the king of kings? Isn't that Jesus? How weird is it that this pagan king is getting called things that Jesus gets called? And then look, like if you've read the book of Revelations, these words together kind of, Revelation, these words together kind of sound familiar right he has given the kingdom the power the might and the glory along with everything that dwells on the earth to nebuchadnezzar like this doesn't make sense what are you doing here talking to a lost pagan king who's 
Kills a bunch of people. Let's just put it that way. Not the greatest guy on earth. Kills a bunch of people. And yet he's the king of kings whom God has sovereignly given kingdom and authority and might and power to and glory to. So you have this exaltation. Nebuchadnezzar, king of kings, you have this humility. Every bit of your kingship is the gift of a sovereign God. See, I think we have this so limited view of the sovereignty of God. Like, yeah, God is sovereign over Israel. And yeah, God is sovereign in the Bible world. And yeah, God is sovereign in the church, maybe. If, you know, I don't get too mad and I don't get enough people mad with me. And God is sovereign over Christians. And God is sovereign over, you know, like if we have a semi-Christian country or a semi-Christian government, God's sovereign there. But, like, come on, Iran? Middle East? And we have this limited view as if God is only in control of the stuff that we like. And then the rest is kind of out of his purview. It's not quite under his control. And this reminds us, God is sovereign over every speck of dust in this universe. God is sovereign over every ruler, every government, every administration, every official, every human being that exists on this planet. And he upholds it all by the word of his power. God's sovereignty is not limited. His rule, his power, and his authority is not limited to the little ways we limit it. It is all-encompassing sovereignty. God gives Nebuchadnezzar, this lost king, everything that he has. And you're thinking, that doesn't make sense. Maybe you wrestle with that. Like, how could God give people like this, murderous people like this, glory and authority and might? You might wrestle with that. There's a guy in the Bible that wrestled with that too, named Habakkuk. Habakkuk looks around his country, maybe like you and I look around our country, and they're like, God, we are so wicked. We are so sinful. We mess everything up. God, you need to clean this thing up. And God's like, I'm going to clean it up. That's a good idea. But I'm going to clean it up using this horrible, atrocious, ungodly nation. And then Habakkuk's like, wait, 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 God, no, no, that's not what I meant. Like, you can't take us who are kind of bad and take these really awful people and judge us with that. Like, that, you can't do that. And this is the wrestling of Habakkuk. We need to be cleaned up, God, but we don't need to be cleaned up as much as those people. But God uses those people, the wicked people, to judge his not-quite-as-ungodly nation. God gave Nebuchadnezzar authority. Why? Why does he have a global empire, a known world empire? Because God for hundreds of years has promised, if you worship and serve idols, I will take this land from you and drive you out of it. If you will worship and serve idols and you won't come to me, the fountain of living waters, then I will judge you. I, I, not abandon you, but I will cut you off. I will, I will exile you out of your land. So you've got a global empire for this speck of a nation called Israel. That God determined to judge because they would not worship him. Despite everything he had done for them, they would worship their other gods instead. And so God raises up a guy like Nebuchadnezzar and gives him a worldwide empire, fame and glory and power to judge his little nation. And that's what we see unfolding in this text. And so we have these four kingdoms, uh, Nebuchadnezzar being the first, the head of gold. He's the king of kings. And then it moves on to this inferior empire, this silver empire. If you want to know in in world history who that is, the Medo-Persian empire arises after Nebuchadnezzar. 
We don't know how it was inferior. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom lasted 66 years, of which he was king for 43. When he died, that thing went into a death spiral. The Medo-Persian Empire lasted 200 and some odd years, just as big, just as great. Cyrus is the guy that sends Israel back from captivity at that point. So two options. One, Nebuchadnezzar set the pattern of worldwide empires. He amassed learning. He amassed knowledge. He centralized their, their, their schooling and education for the sages. He showed how empires were meant to be run. Maybe that way. But one of the ways the commentators pointed out that would probably resonate with you and me is the, nation, uh, the, the empires got increasingly sinful. And so it was this sense of the more an empire prospers, the more an empire lasts, the more an empire multiplies its sin and it multiplies its depravity. And so sin will abide with us from empire to empire to empire until Messiah comes. That was another way of looking at it. Then the third kingdom is, again, less than that. It's the Grecian Empire, the Greeks. They did a lot of great things, but they're not mentioned much. So they lasted almost 200 years, not quite. And then you get the, gold, uh, then you get the iron standard of empires, the Roman Empire, which still has residual impact on you today that, that we don't even know about. They lasted for one to 2,000 years. And so from 100 and something before Christ... All the way through the time of Christ, Christ was born into the Roman Empire for anywhere from 500 to 1,500 years after that. The Roman Empire. So why does that matter? Why does it matter that Christianity was, was born in Rome? Why does it matter that Jesus was born in Rome? I'm going to give you just history. I know you're like bored to death and some of y'all hadn't slept, so go ahead and take your nap. It's okay. I'll try to get excited and get you back in just a second. Rome instituted... Rome was a, a, not a beautiful nation. It was a brutal nation. It was a nation of empires and republics and empires and republics, but they were absolutely brutal. But you know what that brutality accomplished? It accomplished what is called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And during this time, Rome instituted this massive system of peace and security as well as this massive system of infrastructure and travel. Had Christianity come at any other point in the world up until Pax Romana, peace Rome, the peace of Rome, it would be almost impossible for the gospel message to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Because you can't get to the uttermost parts of the earth from here. And if you could, you would have died along the way. But when Rome comes in and with total savage brutality, killing people by the tens of thousands on crosses and whips and beheadings, when, when they come in and establish peace through strength, they establish the ability to travel through the known world. And if you can travel through the known world, you can travel with the message of Jesus Christ through the known world. And now all of a sudden, the thousands of Christians that were savaged and brutally killed by Rome also becomes the opportunity for the thousands of Christians to travel the known world to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the known world at the time. And this is the empire that God birthed Christianity into. It's not accidental that in Galatians it says, in the fullness of time, Jesus came, born of a woman. At just the right God-ordained moment in human history, not just Bible world history, human history, Jesus shows up, Jesus has died, buried, and rises again, and Jesus sends his people out into the world with this message at exactly the right God-ordained moment. 
We don't have to go through any more history. Now y'all can wake up. So I want to pull out a second, and I want to, I want to talk about this. So let's pull out a second and think about this. What could you tell me about the Babylonian Empire? History, history professors don't count. What could you tell me about the Greeks? Well, there's Alexander the Great, and I only know that because when I was young, there was a candy called Alexander the Grape, and it had like this picture of a, of a guy on it that was supposed to be him. What can you tell me about the Roman Empire whose law and philosophy and thought still are with us today? Nothing. These are world empires. You live in the world they left you. And you don't know anything about them. And so if a world empire is a blip you don't remember, what is your life and my life? A speck. I'm thinking about the right framework for our lives would be this. Go to the beach. Filter out all that sand until you get onto a grain. And it's like, okay, that's me. When it comes to global history, that is about me. And so the question is, what will I do with this? What kingdom will I give this grain of sand to? Because there's a kingdom you live in and it's seen and it's right in front of you. And you're comfortable in it or you're uncomfortable in it. You're rich in it or you're poor in it. There's things that are easy in it. There's things that are hard in it. But you feel all of them. You see all of them. Are you going to give that grain of sand to that? Because ultimately it's dust and it will go away. Or there's this other king that's, kingdom that's not seen. It's subversive. It's invading this other kingdom. It's taking this other kingdom, not by political force, not by winning elections, not by getting the right kings in place. It's, it's taking over this world one heart at a time. One life at a time. One light being lit. If you were to think about the globe as, as a blacked out map, then what this kingdom is doing is it's lighting a little dot of light. And then that dot of light is touching the circles around it. And there's little dots of light that surround it. And little dots of light surround it. And all of a sudden this, this image of a blacked out globe has lights all over it. Which kingdom will you give your grain of sand to? Maybe we can ask it this way. What about your life shows that you're living for this world? What about your life says, I'm consumed with this kingdom? What about your life says, I love that kingdom. I'm living for that kingdom to come. I'm living so that the people around me can see there's another king and a better king. Another kingdom and a better kingdom. What are you going to give your little speck of sand to? What are you going to strive after? Because one is going away. One lasts forever. Now let's look at the final kingdom. God's kingdom will triumph and last forever And so God's kingdom, this Psalm 2 kind of kingdom, this kingdom that involves the son being installed and all the nations being his inheritance and his heritage. And if you're a king of the earth, you will bow before him or you will be destroyed by him. This kingdom is coming. And look at how it's described, a stone not made with hands. This will not be a political revolution. This will not be we get the right government in place. No human involvement whatsoever. God will establish a kingdom. And then he will strike the last remaining empire on earth at its feet. And it will crumble to nothing. 
But look at it. Like, it would make sense. The rock hits clay, and clay ex- kind of explodes to powder. That makes sense. That's not what it says, though, is it? When that stone of the kingdom of God hits the nations of the earth, it hits the gold, it hits the silver, it hits the bronze, it hits the iron, and it hits the clay, and they become a nothing powder that blows away in the summer wind. And it's such a striking image, isn't it? No trace remains. And then that kingdom will establish, that kingdom will come a mountain, that kingdom will cover the whole earth. And so what do we know about this kingdom? It is powerful. It will crush the mightiest empires to dust and drive them away. What do we know about this kingdom? It is a global kingdom. It fills the whole earth, not just the known world, the whole world. What do we know about this kingdom? It is a forever kingdom. It will never change hands again. It will never transition again. That's what we know about this kingdom. What do we know about this kingdom? It's eternal. Not just what not trade hands, not just what cover everything. It will cover forever. So did that happen when Jesus came the first time in the middle of the Roman Empire? Kind of. A new kingdom was born. John the Baptist said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And heart and life and heart and life has changed until the ends of the earth are touched by this message. But it would be kind of hard to say that Jesus' first coming accomplished what this text says. And so when the prophets are looking out, they see this suffering servant, and they see this warrior king, and they, they, they don't know how to distinguish the two. But one of the ways we think about this in theology is this. It's like if you were looking way out in the distance and you saw a mountain range. Those mountains look side by side, don't they? But when you get into the mountains, you realize there are massive valleys that separate the two different peaks. And that's what the prophets looked out and they saw. They saw these two things and and couldn't figure out how they do together. But when you get up to the coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, you realize there's this valley between. And so the second coming of Jesus sounds an awful lot like Daniel chapter 2, doesn't it? Let me read for you Revelation 19 or parts of it. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has on his uh, a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen and pure and white were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword which is to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, Psalm chapter 2. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh are written a name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That sounds like what happens in the book of Daniel. The nations of the earth arrayed against him with the biggest army humanity has ever put together. And all Jesus does is open his mouth and a sword strikes the nations to nothing. And a new kingdom has come. A kingdom forever. A kingdom where God dwells with his people again. A kingdom where he is their God and they are his people. A kingdom where there's no more mourning or crying or pain or sickness. The old things have passed away at this point. So what kind of king is coming? What kind of kingdom is coming? Isaiah chapter 9. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, the rod of his oppressor, 
You have broken as in the day of Midian. Why? For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. We know a powerful kingdom is coming that is eternal, but what kind of king will rule it? A king who's known as the Prince of of peace, a king that is known as everlasting father, a king that is known as a wonderful counselor. What kind of kingdom is going to take the place? Will it be another democracy? Will it be a republic? Will will it be tyrannical? Will it be authoritarian? Or will it be a kingdom of absolute perfect peace, absolute perfect justice, absolute perfect righteousness forever and forever? That's the kingdom that will crush the nations and drive the empires of this earth away. So how does this all work out for Daniel? Because didn't he, isn't he still part of this deal? The last part, God's active involvement in our lives can lead to increased influence for his glory. God's active involvement in our lives can lead to increased influence for his glory. We don't have to go into this one a lot. Let's just look at it simply. The king of kings on earth falls on his face before Daniel, a teenage boy. And think how uncomfortable as a follower of God it would be for a king to fall at your feet and bow down. Think how uncomfortable as a follower of Jesus it would be for somebody to make offerings and incense to you. And this is just part of navigating life in a pagan world. He's got a king uh, bowing down to him, and he's got a worship offering offered to him. But then... The title that God had given Nebuchadnezzar was, Oh, you're the king of kings. Nebuchadnezzar gives it right back to God at this point. As one of the four or five times pagan kings will praise the true and living God. He says, Your God is the God of gods. Your God is the Lord over every king. So the name that he had received, he realizes, I must give this one back to him. And so Nebuchadnezzar is worshiping Daniel's God. As he worships Daniel. And I guess that's why Daniel is able to kind of receive it and to walk through it. And then he is elevated with honor, gifts. And this teenage boy is now in charge of the capital province. And this teenage boy goes ahead and requests of the king. While we're talking king, i got these three friends who are also teenage boys. Really love it if they could kind of take care of Babylon, the province, for us. And he grants the request. All Daniel has done is... Faith, prayer, and faithfulness. And God has unlocked beyond reasonable expectations influence over a pagan world. Elevation in a pagan world. A pagan praising his God because of how he's lived his life to this point. That's what's happened. And so how might God want to be real in your work life? How might God want to be real in your school life? So that, yes, he can establish you, all things being equal. And, yes, he can impact the lost world around you so that God is praised. God receives glory in the circles around you because of the way he works in your life and through your life. Now, please, don't get me wrong. This is not prosperity gospel. You know what this great promotion is going to get us in the next chapter? 
These three guys, these three teenagers that had this amazing promotion, you know what they earn out of this great promotion? They get chucked in a fiery furnace at the end of the day. You know what it earns Daniel after 70 years of faithful service? He gets chucked into a lion's den at the end of the day. This is not prosperity gospel. This elevation is all things being equal, and this elevation may end with your head getting chopped off at the end of the deal. But it's a God who is active in the lives of his people, who desires to show his reality, not just in the spiritual stuff, but in all the stuff of life, so that he can make a difference in the lives of people around you with this hidden kingdom taking over hearts through people like you. Not people like me. Yes, people like me too. People like you where you are. A couple practical things as we wrap up. Three questions I'm going to ask you. Have you met the saving king? This kingdom will come. And all who belong and have citizenship in it will enter into this eternal goodness, this eternal glory. But only those who are citizens of this kingdom. And so God did send his son the first time. He was mocked. He was rejected. He was despised. He was tortured. He was ultimately hung on a cross by the predetermined plan and the sovereign foreknowledge of God. And he died on a cross for your sins and for mine. And he was buried and he rose again from the dead to offer you life, to offer me life. Had he come, he would be so right to come and crush the nations of men when he first came. But instead, he came to offer salvation to the kingdoms of men before he comes again. Have you believed in this saving king? Not have you believed in church, not are you a good Baptist, not have you given money. Have you been convicted of your sin and put your faith in Jesus alone to save you? Second, what makes you long for the kingdom that is to come? Life hurts sometimes. Life is intensely frustrating sometimes. Life breaks us sometimes what about life has broken you to the point where you just long for this better kingdom even more where you come to the point with john you're like jesus would you come would you come what makes you long for this kingdom to come and let me encourage you with this this kingdom is coming this kingdom will take you into it And keep you in it forever and forever. And whatever this life holds till you get there, remember the kingdom's coming. Last question. What kingdom has your heart and your striving? You are living for something. You are living for someone. Someone has your heart. Who? What? Is it fame? Success? Status? Popularity? Achievement, possessions. What has your heart? Is it Jesus? Is it Jesus? So my back hurts all the time. Relationships can get super messy and make my job really, really stressful. Probably yours too. But there's a kingdom coming. The world's such a mess. There's a kingdom coming. Be hopeful. And live like there's a kingdom coming. Be hopeful and live like there's a kingdom coming. What makes you long for it? Which one are you living for? Let's pray. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask, capture our hearts with a better vision of a better king and a better kingdom.